Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your takes, your questions, your inquiries, and ultimately your comments on tennis and other stuff. About 24 hours ago, I posted in the YouTube community tab, about 70 of you responded, and I have read through those and excited to get going. Of course, if your comment is not answered in this one, try again next week, just because I don't get to want to... This week doesn't mean I won't do it next week. I want to keep this one to 30 minutes. Uh, this first one, let's just pull it up here. It comes from Marcos, and it pertains to probably what was the biggest news in the tennis world this week. I mean, this was a, a mainstream sports news story. I saw that on I saw this on ESPN.com. I saw it on the bottom ticker. On, on multiple networks. Um, it is thoughts on Zverev having a baby and allegations of domestic abuse from his ex-girlfriend. How do you think this is going to impact him? The second part of the question I can tell you right now, I have no idea. I can't begin to even take a stab at that. I don't know how this will impact Zverev other than to say, I know that he's had off-court turbulence in his past. This is not new for him. And it has seemingly affected him at times. It has. So we'll see. But who knows? On the first one, you know, it is crazy that these two factoids were in such close succession. These two news stories. Because I think a lot of people, first of all, some people thought it was the same woman. And I don't blame them for for, for thinking that if they didn't read the news carefully and closely, you could understand why someone would have thought that. These are two different women. Uh, one girlfriend, Brenda Patea, or ex-girlfriend, I should say, is is pregnant with Zverev's child. Another, um, Olya, Sh Sh is it Sharapova? Sharipova? Um, I don't know the pronunciations there. Uh, Sharipova, I think it is, based on the spelling. She has accused Zverev on Instagram of a, a very specific instance of domestic abuse at the U.S. Open in a hotel. So these two things are separate. Zverev released a statement on his social media accounts, and both he addressed both in one statement, which I, I get. It was just it was just wild to me that those two things would be in one statement. I've never seen anything like that in a PR statement to have to address. I'm going to be a father, and I'm being accused of domestic abuse, which he categorically denied. He said, quote, simply untrue. That's what he said. So let me take these one at a time. I, I want to separate them. They're not the same. They're totally different. Um, first of all, I don't have much of an understanding of what either uh, Zverev or Brandon, Brenda Patea uh is going through with this because there's no one in my life who I know who is a biological father but does not have any custody. I, I know plenty of, of divorced people um, and children of divorced parents, but that's a little bit different. I, I can't think of an instance. I don't person, and maybe I do know these people and it's just, you know, it's private. So I'm not privy to the information, but I don't, have anyone in my life who is in this situation 
where either their bi biological father does not have custody or they are the biological father of children who they do not have custody over. So I don't know how this affects people. I don't know. I don't really know what to make of it. It's not a great look. It it means that Zverev and, and Brenda clearly did not end on good terms because I don't think that, I think if they ended on um, agreeable terms or I guess, you know, I just think that if things were okay in that relationship when it ended, and I, I understand most relationships don't end with uh, ponies and peaches and cream, but I think that Zverev would maybe, maybe Brenda wouldn't have made it so clear that Alexander will have no custody whatsoever. And she said that they don't have a lot of contact. So that's all I got on the first one. I don't really know much to make of it. The second one is a lot more relevant, a lot more serious. Uh, the, when the first one broke, and the first one broke f first, um, him, Brenda Patea being pregnant with his child was the first piece of information that we learned. I didn't really care much. I wasn't going to talk about it. I had nothing to say about it. This is, you know, that's a player's personal life, and uh, I don't really care that much. The second one is a lot more serious, a lot more relevant, honestly. Um, so I want to take two angles at this to try to add to this discussion. Because obviously I'm a tennis analyst who's not 100% qualified to talk about domestic abuse. Uh, but the first thing I want to talk about is the notion that a woman who comes out with this is... Uh, is basically held to a standard of innocent until proven guilty. And that's what I see a lot, innocent until proven guilty. I find that that standard is grossly misused in the public. That is a legal standard. It is a very important legal standard. I think every justice system in the world should have a legal, uh, an innocent until proven guilty standard of guilt. When you are talking about the state actually locking people up, taking away their freedom, that better be hard to do. You can't allow a state to punish its citizens like that willy-nilly. It needs to be, there needs to be an intensely difficult standard to read, uh, to reach. That, you know, the fact that um, a plaintiff which is the person who, who brings the charges, it is up to the plaintiff to prove guilt. It is not up to the defendant to prove guilt. And that is very important in our legal system. I 100% support that in our legal system. No such standard needs to exist in the court of public opinion. It just doesn't. It's not, it's not necessary to hold everything to that standard in the court of public opinion. No one, people act like that is some sort of rule for life. It's not a rule for life. It's, it's a rule for the legal system. It's for the legal system. It is, uh, it is unrealistic if you are going to ask all women who publicly report domestic abuse to have rock solid proof and rock solid evidence. Um, so I encourage you, I encourage everyone to think about if they are, Slapping that standard on any on any case of 
of domestic abuse or maybe even even sexual violence, if, if that is the standard that you are slapping on every case, ask yourself in the court of public opinion, do you feel the same way about murder? Do you feel the same way about robbery and burglary? Uh, or do you kind of not hold those accusations to the same kind of scrutiny that you hold an, an accusation of domestic abuse? I don't see a lot of uh, reason why Alia would make that up. Um, and I think that more often than not, when these accusations come forward, they, they aren't completely fabricated. I think that would, that would be on the, on the rare side. Uh, but the one other thing I wanted to, to address here, because I've, I've said at the top, I'm not qualified to talk about domestic abuse specifically. I'm not, I just did, you know, I did want to talk about the whole innocent until proven guilty thing. But the second thing I want to talk about is something that I read online uh, from someone who has had experience with abuse. This was sexual abuse, not domestic abuse. It's different. Uh, but I did want to read this thread because it was illuminating. It was someone's personal experience. And I think that there are uh, takeaways to be had here. I'm not going to reveal the identity of this person. It was a very personal thing that they shared on social media. I do, however, feel uh, liberated to share it with you guys on this platform because it, it was put out onto social media for anyone to see and to read. So I want to read this. I've seen many people wonder why Alia didn't go to the police or didn't say anything immediately. Let me tell you the reason why I couldn't come forward when I was abused or assaulted. Shock. No one thinks they'll ever get abused, especially by the ones they trust. When it happens, it takes a lot of time to process. When you do finally realize what happened, you try to find answers like, why did this happen? What did I do to end up in this situation? Second bullet point, shame. I always thought I, I was a really strong person, but when I was sexually assaulted, I couldn't believe I let it happen to me. What will my parents think of me, my friends, my society? Will I be able to... Uh, will I be able to handle being judged? Despite all of my best efforts, I still have this. Third bullet point is fear. Fear of not being believed. My abuser was a chemistry teacher, very handsome and charming. I did have a crush on him and flirted with him, but I didn't know any better. I was a child, but I also know others noticed me flirting, and I was afraid they'd think I'm lying, and they did. Now I can't even imagine what it must be to come forward against a celebrity with a huge following. I don't even think I don't even think about the harassment and abuse they get online and in person must be hell. Another bullet point, denial. I just wanted to move on like nothing happened, like it didn't break me inside. I wanted to pretend like I was strong and move on. You can't. Not wanting to relive the moment and um not wanting to relive the moment and those leading up to the moment, not wanting to think about him ever again. Another bullet point, not having enough evidence. When it happens, your first instinct is to try and get out of the situation as soon as possible. Like even if you know if it's essential to document ev evidence, you can't think straight. The ones you um, gather, I think there's a typo here. The ones you gather are usually the messages you send seeking help, like Alia. When you go to the cops, you have, you have to relive every small detail. The questioning is their job, I understand. I was so effed up mentally, my dad didn't want me to go through with it. His other victims already did. 
even then, what if they don't believe you or don't have enough evidence? So uh, wrapping up here, every person deals with these situations at their own pace. It takes a lot of strength to overcome your inner battles and come forward. Don't judge the victims because they took so much time to tell their story. Sometimes it does take a lot of time. Try to listen without judgment. It's been 10 years since it happened to me. I still can't openly talk about it. And uh, I'm not going to read past that. So that's someone's personal experience. And I think that a lot of people have those fair questions. And um, it, it just comes from a place of, you know, the, the more the more we can spread understanding about why these things happen, why Alia wouldn't go to the police, why she wouldn't say something immediately after it happened, because I know that that's questions that people had. So I thought that personal anecdote was, uh, was really good. So let me wrap this up here with this. I'm disappointed to see the accusations. I really hope they're untrue, but I can't assume they're untrue. So uh, it's a shame. It's for now a stain on his reputation, and um, I hope I hope something can can be done um, for him to um, to vindicate himself because I, I really do hope they're untrue. But I can't personally. I can't just assume they're untrue. Uh, I don't have any reason to to believe they're untrue. And my burden of evidence is not innocent until proven guilty. If I were a federal judge or if I were a judge, I would um, I would then obtain that burden of proof because that would be my job to do so. But as as a member of the public, that is not my burden of evidence. So I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm very disappointed to uh, see the accusations and I'll leave it at that. This next one from Danilo Rodriguez. What are Rafa's chances of winning the Paris Masters? Look, first of all, this time of year is a lot about motivation. And I'm about to talk a little bit more about that when I get to Novak Djokovic and his exit in Vienna. So I think the fact that Nadal wants to play this tournament, the fact that he is already in Paris, practiced with Stan Wawrinka uh, yesterday, these are these are good signs. I think this means he wants to win the event. He doesn't have Novak to deal with. He doesn't have Roger to deal with. So he should be the favorite. Um, I expect big things out of him. But it will be interesting. It's his least favorite surface. Indoor hard court. So it's never easy. But I would favor Rafa to win Paris right now. From Jared, what's your analysis on Davidovich Fokina? What's his ceiling? What are his strengths and weaknesses? Someone asked on Twitter if the ATP rankings were a stock market, whose stocks were would you buy? So, of course, if there's a lot of hype around a particular player, that means their stock price is going to be expensive. So I think in asking that question, what, what Bastion was asking on Twitter is, who do you really think people are underlooking? Who has a lot of upside? Who's going to be going uh, shooting up the rankings very shortly that people aren't really talking about? My answer was Alejandro Davidovich Fokina. Um, here's here are his strengths. Here's what he has. He's got amazing power for his size. He's the kind of player who's going to rip a couple of triple-digit mile per hour forehands any given match. The kind of player who can hit backhand winners from 
slightly offensive positions. He doesn't need a huge opening to do point-ending damage with his backhand. So he's got a ton of power, and I really like the way he accesses that power. He doesn't have really long swings or any kind of crazy technique. He's got really great fast twitch muscle fibers, clearly, because his swings are relatively short. His technique is, is sound and quiet, yet he has all this power. I love to see that in a ground game. The second thing he has is really great athleticism. Uh, the power he brings at his height, I think he's about 6'1", is is more than, than usual, so he retains the ability to move really well. And I think he's a good mover, a good athlete, um, and I've seen him scramble really well in a lot of matches defensively. The third thing are his hands. He's got great touch. He's got great feel. Um, he loves using the drop shot, maybe too much and too often. But it's still a great weapon for him, and he's got really good hands. So that helps him at the net. It helps him mixing in the drop shot. But I think it also helps his things like return of serve and defense when the ball's coming really fast and you're playing with the continental grip. I think Davidovich Fakina is very uh, prolific when he needs to use his touch. What are his weaknesses? Firstly, the serve. That's a shot that I don't like as much from a technical standpoint. The The elbow gets very far away from the body. It's a very kind of roundabout, um, strange, I think, arm motion. Not not horrible, just not great. Um, so I think the serve is, is far from elite, and that's something that he could improve. And the er, he's very erratic right now. There's a lot of errors. He can play a great 10 minutes and then play an awful 10 minutes. He's very, very inconsistent. He's just got to work on his steadiness, his consistency. He's got to miss less, and he will be on his way. I think he's a good player that people are not do not uh, give enough credit. The second part of Jared's question is people have been talking about Medvedev's one-hit wonder in 2019. I personally think he's here to stay. Do you think he's an Andy Murray archetype or more like Gilles Simone? I'd say he's in the middle. And I like that you say, I think he's here to stay because I agree with you 100% that Daniil Medvedev is here to stay. And what I said at the beginning of the year with Medvedev is don't pump the brakes on Medvedev and the hype train. Just tap them. Because right now it is easy to forget that Medvedev has, is still playing like a player who's between the fifth and the 10th best player in the world. And he's very steadily in that range. He's just not the player who we saw in the summer of 2019 where he reached six straight finals. And I didn't expect him to continue with that level. People know how to play him now. Um, he has is not uh, the same player mentally that he was summer of 2019. I don't know if he ever will be. It was it was magical, and it's it's hard to capture that organically ever again. Um, with that being said, he's still one of the best players in the world right now. He needs to take an extra step. I have covered it in past mailbags. I believe he needs to get stronger. I need I I want to see him in the weight room. I want to see him develop his strength in the in the upper body so that he can access easier power. That's what I want to see as the next step for Medvedev um, because I think there are a lot of other things that are in a really good place. I think he's improved his serve. That was something that needed to be improved, and he did. I really do feel like that 
is the next step. He is here to stay. He's just not... Look, let me put it this way. Let me use a comparison. He's not head and shoulders above uh, Tsitsipas or Zverev. He's just not. So we shouldn't act like he is. Somewhere in between Murray and Simone, I think, would be appropriate. This one from OCS. Thoughts on Djokovic finishing number one, a record sixth time, and locking in 305 weeks at number one, pretty much assuring him to pass Fetter. If he finishes with most weeks at number one, most slams, most and all nine masters, twice that would be, and the head-to-head -head record over Federer and Nadal, is he undisputed in your opinion? Are you asking me if Djokovic breaks every single significant record, is he the undisputed GOAT? Is that the question? Yeah, yeah. If he breaks every record, he, he must be considered the most accomplished player of all time, therefore the greatest of all time. There are other sports where, um, where that is how we kind of look at things. Um, and yeah, I mean, look, that, that, that's every significant record. If Djokovic breaks every significant record, um, it is what it is. Sorry if you guys heard that buzzing. They're calling me. Um, with that being said, he's still not going to be everybody's personal GOAT. Um, it would be my job as as a as a commentator and someone who doesn't have a horse in the race to to call him the goat. That would be my job. Um, but he's not going to be everyone's goat. They're still going to you know everyone's going to have their their player, um, and not not all of it is going to be by the numbers for some people. And that's how it is. That's how it's going to be. Jose Novak versus Lorenzo Sinego after match analysis. This was about motivation. This is something that you see all the time. With the majors in the rear view mirror, weird results happen. It is like clockwork every year. Weird stuff happens when the majors are in the rear view, and that is because physical health is all over the place and motivation is all over the place. The tennis season is long. It is grueling. It is taxing. Players, I think, really want a break at this part of the year. And it comes down to how engaged are they? How motivated are they? Novak Djokovic admitted after the match that clinching the year and number one, which is the reason he played Vienna to clinch that. He said that clinching that affected his performance in the match. And he was not able to play his best uh, because basically his motivation suffered because he accomplished what he went to Vienna to accomplish already. Normally, when Djokovic enters a tournament, he doesn't accomplish what he set out to accomplish until he lifts the trophy at the end. What he was saying is it was hard for him to play his best because he had already accomplished what he had set out to do. Congratulations to Lorenzo Sinego. He called it the, the biggest victory of his career. Really happy for him. He's playing great tennis. And let's not act like Lorenzo Sinego is someone who just popped out of nowhere and got lucky with a Djokovic that was not playing his best. Sinego has made noise. He made the round of 16 uh, at Roland Garros. He reached, uh, he has a title on grass court last year. So 
Sinego is a good player, and he played a great match. But uh, with Novak, it came down to, to motivation. I want to tell a little bit of a story here because I do think that I'm very similar to Novak Djokovic in this way, mentally. I am a really goal-oriented person, and I think Novak is as well. It's all about setting goals and working to reach those goals. I used to argue with my father during my um, regrettable tennis career about tournament play. My dad used to want to see me training harder, especially physically. And he would, I would say, dangle that in front of me as an incentive for him to sign me up for tournaments. In other words, he would say, Gil, I want to see you jumping rope. I want to see you on the agility ladder, working on your footwork and doing push-ups. And when I see you do those things, I will sign you up for the next tournament. And I used to say, no, dad, that's not how it works at all. You have it completely reversed. You need to sign me up for tournaments first, and then you will see me doing those things and going the extra mile, putting the extra work in. Because if you sign me up for tournaments first, now I have something to work towards. So that was a point of contention that we never agreed on, my father and I, um, and I think that kind of applies here. I'm just saying that when you have a goal, I know that's how my mind works and not everyone is like this, but I'm so goal oriented. I need a goal that I'm striving to achieve. So I could see when Novak achieves what he wants to achieve, it's hard for him to, to get up and stay focused. And he just didn't have the spunk in this match, didn't have the spunk in his movement and was not himself. The next one comes from Nathan. I've been seeing Hawkeye Live used at more at tournaments as of late. You may have already touched on this, but I'd like to know how do you feel about this, its implementation and what do you think is the ideal way to call tennis matches? I believe that Hawkeye Live is the future. Made myself a delicious latte. Um, I believe that Hawkeye Live is the future. Tennis is one of the most fair sports in the world. I've talked about this before, but where officiating is a really big part of basketball and baseball and soccer and football and hockey, officiating is huge. It's important. Tennis does not have that. And I think that's great. I think that's cool. Um, there aren't a lot of close calls. I don't think that the officials decide a lot of matches, and I don't think that's the case in most other sports. So tennis already kind of eliminates the human error. Why not go a step further? Why not eliminate it more? I think one of the big uh, spots where you actually do see human obj uh, subjectivity coming into play is when the chair umpires have to decide after a challenge, after a successful challenge, do I want to replay the point or did the out call not affect the outcome of the point? Do I want to award the point to whoever looked to have won the point? That is a subjective call that you see players argue all the time. I think the closer you can get to fairness here, you do it. However, I'm not 100% on this at all. I have my reservations. And uh, the biggest thing is I know that lines people 
are part of the tennis ecosystem. And my heart hurts for an entire part of that ecosystem to be cut out. And I'm not sure that can happen. Kind of reminds me of Broadway shows. There was a couple, there was a time on Broadway in New York City where the owners of the theaters or the, the plays or however it works actually wanted to cut out the live orchestra and go to a digital music model. So all of the people who are paid to play music during Broadway shows uh, to score the plays uh, or the musicals, they would become unemployed. Their jobs would be eradicated because why pay a bunch of people to play instruments and conduct an orchestra when we can just play it out of the loudspeaker? Makes sense. It's an obvious point of cost cutting. But what happened is the Broadway workers are unionized and they said, you can't do that. You can't. Um, and the actors and the actresses and all of the people involved in Broadway threatened to go on strike and use their, their power and organized in order to save all of those jobs. And they did so successfully. So I do wonder if the ATP or the WTA or the, or the slams tried to actually phase out lines people who would if any who would stand up for them and would there be a point of contention when it comes to the labor system in tennis because i do think it's possible that there would be a problem there and some people would uh would take issue notice it did take a pandemic for people to try this for tournaments to try this that's not a coincidence. That means that it that there were forces against Hawkeye Live to begin with. The second thing is something that Joel Drucker has pointed out um, a couple of times to me, which is if you eliminate lines people, what is the path to become a chair umpire? You still need chair umpires. And traditionally, to become a chair umpire, first you are a lines person. So what does that path look like? I don't know. And it's something to keep in mind. Let us move on to SJ. I am clearly a biased Rafa fan, but I'd like to hear your unbiased opinion on this. Do you feel Rafa is held to a higher standard than everyone else? I've noticed for a few years now, it seems that when he demolishes top players, he receives very little credit in the tennis community compared to Federer or Djokovic. I mean, he's bageled and crushed his two biggest rivals in straight sets at slam finals. And all people say is, well, it's clay, so whatever. I would say yes. I would say there is, I would say yes, sometimes Rafa is unfairly discredited because of Clay. But again, it goes back to what I said last week, that everyone will frame, um, will frame the same evidence, the same statistics, and they will frame it in a way that supports their player. So if you are a if you are coming from a Djokovic bias or a Federer bias, you will take points away from Clay. Naturally, you will do that. But that is a you know, that is obvious bias. But I do want to address what I do think is a more natural uh human nature dynamic that can occur with Nadal, uh, which is to say that Tennis fans, even neutral observers, want suspense. They want variation. They want 
close matches. They want interesting tournaments. And Nadal has been so dominant that sometimes he has robbed everyone of that. Just like this final. Now, it is one thing reveling in the level, the unbelievable level of tennis that Nadal brought to the tennis court. And that is great. And I enjoyed watching the match. But it's not like if we got a repeat of 2013, it's not like that would have been better. So if you are, if you have ever sensed some disappointment or if you have ever sensed anything like that, you know, when, when Nadal wins easily, know that it's not necessarily that they have it out for Nadal. It could also come from a place of disappointment that the match was not better or that the match was not more suspenseful. So this certainly exists. Well, it's clay, so whatever. I think it's a fair assessment. Um, it's it's not fair, and it's certainly out there. Last one from Gene. Hello, Gil. You regularly talk about players' fitness, and you rank very highly. Some players that I wouldn't have thought of because they are not title contenders. Could you make a short list of the best players on tour fitness-wise? Sure. Um... I think if you move outside of the top 15, and by the way, if you look at the top 10, so many of the players have elite fitness, which just goes to show that it really requires, I think outside of outside of Berrettini, um, mostly Berrettini, I think all the players, they're so unbelievably fit. It's a necessity at the top of the sport. You have to be, you have to be an elite athlete. I think some of the players who are well outside the top 10, top 15, um, so, you know, I guess between 15 and 10, you have PCB, you have RBA, both players with elite fitness. Um, I think about the player who I think spurred this comment is probably Martin Fushevics. And I think he, he has elite fitness, uh, Borna Chorich, it, when he's healthy is one of the most fit players on tour. And John Millman is certainly one of the most fit players on on tour when he's healthy. Then you have some players who obviously have the quickness, like Alex DiMinor, uh, but I don't know how how long he can sustain it. Um, those are the players who who really come to mind. Hyun Chung is unbelievably fit, and he just doesn't really have the hasn't been able to come up with the serve and the ball striking to really back that up. But he's got elite fitness as well. The second part of this is, um, do you know the rule to this specific situation? The player hits the ball with so much slice that the ball, after crossing the net, goes backward into the net on the opponent's side without touching the ground. Who wins the point? The player who hit the slice would win the point. And if you can pull that, and if you can successfully pull off that shot, uh, go for it because there's not much your opponent can do about it. So. That is, whoever hits the slice wins that point. Really appreciate all the engagement. As always, everyone, I know that I got to less questions than normal in this one. Um, so I reiterate, ask it again next week. Um, I had to go long on the first item, and uh, I don't want to go much longer than this. Look out for Monday match analysis. Uh, Vienna, also Kazakhstan, but I don't know how much I'll cover that yet to be seen. But certainly... The Vienna final and some of the major storylines from that tournament will be covered at length. And I will bring on a guest because I feel like talking to someone this week. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I will see you next time.